Hey there! Welcome to Sass and Bound, brought to you by Sass Group. I'm your host, and Dana, and this is the show where we chat with inspiring founders and experts to get an inside scoop on how they made their business success. And today with me is Nimrod Priel, founder and CEO at Cord, bringing collaboration into the products your team works in. Uh, they're passionately removing friction from teamwork and making collaboration inside their organizations easier, which is super exciting. And I'm happy to uh, see you here and learn how you're doing it. Thanks, Anna. Great to be sure. here. All right. Well, uh, first things first, uh, I know you've got quite a, um, a bit of an experience and uh, I'd like to dig in there a little bit. So maybe we'll start with your background and just the whole inspiration behind Cord. Sure. Um, I started out as an engineer. That was uh, 20 years ago. I uh, started in an Israeli military unit and then worked at a couple of startups. Uh, most of them didn't work out, but I got lucky. And the third startup I joined uh, got acquired by Facebook. And I spent five and a half years there as a PM, uh, basically running this little subsidiary for Facebook. And um, we had a few million users in the Play Store and the App Store. So we had a couple of mobile apps. And we had uh, an internal service that was used by thousands of uh, Facebook employees that was a sort of dashboard kind of tool related to this um, that was used by a lot of PMs and, and so on. And, um, and so both of these experiences kind of taught me like a, a small micro experience of B2B because internally serving employees um, and, and giving a dashboard tool was sort of a B2B SaaS-like um, product. And then the kind of uh, app store, B2C mobile apps um, experience as well. Uh, and then I left, I started advising friends of mine who had um, formidable success with their companies doing B2B SaaS. Then this brought me to start Cord. So one of the themes that I've seen through these years and today feels like very obvious, but we've lived through an explosion in SaaS tools. There used to be um, you know, a, a few hundred MarTech tools. And then if you look today, the market maps for MarTech tools, there's thousands. So I think yeah. I saw a market map from 2019 with uh, 7,290 different tools. Um, and that's just in the MarTech vertical. If you look broadly, there's like entirely new tool sets that didn't exist, like, um, you know, AI-based uh, content creation tools or... Um, product managers didn't use to have a, a kind of a tool stack of their own. And today there's like quite a few tools that are directed at product managers specifically. So there's there's a ton of um, growth in that space. Um, and companies as a result use more and more SaaS. So uh, Okta shares this chart every year of how many SaaS tools does the average SME use. And it grew from, uh, I think, 70 tools around 20. 17, 2018, um, to like over 100 tools in the latest uh, iterations. Uh, and if you look at tech companies, they over-index um, compared to the average general SME. So I, I spoke to um, you know companies like uh, Sneak, for example, that use mm -hmm. you know at least in the last count I got you know over 300 tools um, oh, wow. across the company, and so. We all work in these tools, but we work in teams, right? We need, um, you know, we need uh, uh, help. We need feedback. We need uh, approval for stuff we do. We sometimes need to pass on the baton, right? Like I did my part. Now it's, you know, your piece of the puzzle. And as you work in these tools to make these like transactions um, that do something in our CRMs, in our CMSs, it's a new marketing landing page, a new whatever. Um, and so today, Inevitably, all that communication about the help, the approval, the feedback, it goes into Slack and email, right? Um, and that means a lot of copying and pasting screenshots and a lot of uh, copying and pasting links or maybe what I call the text adventure, which is like you um, say sort of, uh, oh, uh, go to the main dashboard in type form and then click this survey and then click the results tab and then go here and go there. Um, and the this is not only disruptive to the person that sends the message that has to like go into you know do this like weird yeah. finger stretch to uh, take a screenshot and then um, 
you know, find the right channel in Slack or the right DM group and whatever. Mm -hmm. um, it's also really the, the main loss is that when you go back to the tool, there's no record of the conversation taking place. Like nobody knows that did, did someone discuss this chart before that there's a massive drop in, uh, you know, revenue in uh, December uh, 22. Did, did we discover why it happened? Um, is there like result? You have to like look through Slack. It's very hard to search there. Mm -hmm. Like everything is, you can't search a screenshot, right? Um, so all of these issues kind of contribute to the success of tools that, have embedded collaboration as soon as it's like high enough fidelity, high enough quality that people can trust it and move to using that in product commenting experience rather than um, relying on Slack. And you see this in like Figma or even Google Docs or a whole suite of, of new tools where um, you know, nobody takes a screenshot of a Google Doc and says, go to like page two, paragraph three, line four, right? It's like all comments in line. And so this is what we kind of spotted as a pattern. And, and my co-founder and, co and I, we went and uh, uh, kind of pitched this and vision. And we saw that a lot of SaaS vendors that we spoke to were interested in this. And so we you know, started a company and now we're in a few dozen tools and all kinds of verticals from like um, whiteboard like tools to uh, video editing tools to uh, dashboards and BI tools and FPNA tools and a whole host of applications that we didn't even imagine. Um, so yeah, we're just trying to kind of, you know, if you take Stripe for checkout, we're trying to be the uh, kind of API and SDK of choice for the collaboration in your in your SaaS. That sounds wonderful. I mean, when I first learned about what you're doing, uh, I was like, oh my God, I would love to use that because like you said, everything is just kind of, you know, vaporizes after like a day or two, like you talked about it and then you mentioned a, a doc or like you sent a screenshot and then it kind of just like disperses into the a beast and you know it's just lost and you have to you know on the next call you're like oh did you go through that and you you spent the same amount of time of like just going through that again so it's a meeting that could have been you know an email or that could have been a comment uh somewhere so completely understand the the, the problem that you're solving so um you think collaborative software is what the future is going to look like for SaaS. I think so. I think all tools will eventually be multiplayer, just as, you know, this move to the cloud, which seems so obvious now, it, it wasn't, you know, 15 years ago, it was totally new. And there was like this new set of companies that started doing things uh, on the cloud and kind of uh, saying, you know, enough with the on-prem and stuff, but it wasn't, it wasn't clear and obvious um, how, kind of prevalent and ubiquitous and, and kind of assumed uh, this experience would be. And I think it's uh, true for a few things. It's true for the move to the cloud. It's true for PLG software. Mm -hmm. uh, even if you have salespeople to support, you know, kind of enterprise bigger deals, uh, the fact that you can try something with just a card and you can go quite far with just like a, a card, um, you know, it's subscription to all kind of software. It's just going to be um, a part of, of everything. And the same thing, I think, will go for, in almost all cases, you want to talk to your team and, and be able to, like, leave comments in context, especially if it's linked with your other systems of communication, like email and Slack. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So you mentioned that... Um... You were well, well. It's it's an API, uh, right? So, you are, uh, as far as I understand, you have to talk with uh, the developers, right? Because they are going to be the one implementing uh, the tool in the system, but they will not be the ones using it, right? So, um, these are at least like two different sides of the coin. So, you are, yeah, the developers are going to be the one 
uh, working with it at first, but then the users are completely different. So who who are you selling to? Like, how does it translate into your messaging and your marketing? Um, who's your buyer persona and how do you d- differentiate this? Yeah, so I think you're touching on an excellent point, um, which uh, we kind of took to heart ourselves because um, we I'll, I'll answer the question, but I'll start with something else that I think is, is sure. interesting. We um, came from uh, Facebook and at Facebook, a really big part of the kind of ethos was dog fooding. So like mm-hmm. using your own software daily. And so at Facebook, even before um, the Facebook workplace product existed, uh, that was uh, kind of a product to let companies have an internal um, Facebook to talk uh, between themselves. Facebook was using Facebook for its internal communications. So pre-Slack days um, and uh, Slack never essentially, you know, Facebook never used Slack um, at least time I was there. Um, I don't know what it's like now because uh, we just used Facebook and Messenger and that was a great way to uh, kind of have very heavy usage internally so that we can constantly run through uh, the product experience and kind of find mm-hmm. the issues and report them and and be our own kind of first biggest users. And I think it's it's absolutely crucial because no matter how much you encourage and um, you know ask clients for feedback and you should, you will never get the same, kind of level of richness as just being your own user. Um, it's not enough to just dog food because we kind of are blind to some stuff in our own yeah. product and we are uh, using it in a very particular way. Um, but part of the realization that we had, uh, I wouldn't say early on, uh, it took us a while, but uh, part of the big um, kind of difference we did was we essentially um, moved to using cord very, very heavily um, internally. One of the ways was to actually let uh, kind of get, get rid of Slack and we rebuilt uh, Slack in cord um, in, a, in a way that is like, you know, stress tests the SDK because mm-hmm. like if you can build a Slack experience with all of the details and richness and kind of um, fine little product kind of nuances of Slack, the, from the notification configurations to the, you know, muting channels, uh, the side, you know, thread sidebars, all, all the little details there. Um, if you can replicate that and, and have an experience that is as uh, kind of friendly to you as using Slack, then you've reached a very um, good point in the SDK in terms of customizability and performance and kind of the user experience that it allows. And it gives us trust because we rely on this so heavily that as soon as something breaks, we would catch it uh, inside Mm -hmm. of our um, Slack instance. And in fact, we use the kind of staging versions like a day before um, it goes public. So we'll have at least a day to catch any uh, problems that that come up. And so that has been massive. it's one of the ways in which we uh, kind of dog food our stuff. Um, but I will say on the, our buyers essentially have the, kind of the same problem, just as you say. And, mm-hmm. you know, the, oftentimes in B2B SaaS, the buyer persona and the user persona aren't the same. But for us, the buyer persona and the user persona, the, there's two user personas. There's the developer that will have to implement this into the product. And we care very strongly about the developer experience. We've just released a command line interface for this. We've spent a ton of time on our open source demos so that they're as fully baked and kind of realistic as you can get. So you can actually take the open source code as a reference implementation, start from there. Um, A ton of time on examples and documentation and just the, the surface of the API and improving that experience and our blog is filled with details that I'm not sure are interesting to all of the listeners of this podcast about moving from different CSS kind of uh, systems and, and so on. Um, just in response to like making it easier for developers, putting yeah. templates up for Next.js and for um, uh, Remix and stuff like that. And um, 
we we're still investing like that's an area of constant investments an important kind of pillar of of our success and uh we listen to developers when they grumble uh correctly when when things are just not as they expect um but the other user is the end user right and so yeah. we spent a lot of time we did user research with our clients and users right um on our clients behalf focusing on the uh collaboration and commenting experience to suss out what works and what doesn't uh we iterated with clients and in between clients and learned a lot of stuff um about that and we're constantly kind of um you know monitoring that the health of the product within clients implementations because when it'll come to renewal it'll all be a question of is this feature being adopted is it worth my continued kind of um spend on this feature um yeah. and when we see it's adopted it's great and we, we do have you know it's not always the case but we um the majority of cases it, it gets massively adopted by the user base yeah okay that's super cool all right well uh and um you've been around for three years right something around yeah that. we just over that we actually started talking about cord uh, four years ago. So it was just before Thanksgiving, uh, 2019. And then we, uh, did a bunch of user research and we kind of got set up and, um, then raised our first round in 2020 and then, uh, follow on round. This episode is sponsored by rewardful.com. Looking for new ways to find customers for your SaaS business? Consider adding an affiliate program. Rewardful is the easiest affiliate tracking platform to set up, manage, and scale for SaaS companies. Log your customer acquisition cost and only pay affiliates based on results. Integrate Rewardful with your Stripe or Paddle account and set up your affiliate campaigns in minutes. Building a successful affiliate program can be a little bit intimidating figuring out where to get started. That's where Rewardful has taken what they've observed from their most successful customers' affiliate programs and distilled that into an exclusive online course. The exciting part? Their affiliate marketing course is absolutely free. And by joining the waitlist today, you'll get early access to it as soon as it goes live. Join the waitlist at rewardful.com course, rewardful.com course, and turn your biggest fans into your best marketers. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I wanted to, to ask you about because, uh, well, you've grown substantially over the last three years and, uh, in 2020 you've raised 17 and a half million dollars, yeah, right? Million dollars, correct. Yeah. So, um, first of all, um, well, you knew it's a problem. You validated that, you know, this idea is actually feasible for so many people. Uh, why didn't you, uh, decide to stay bootstrap? What was the idea behind going after the VC money was the, you know, the, um, fast growth. Was it the fact that it's getting heated the, the, the market, um, for collaborative software or was there anything else and how was your experience yeah um so look i have a a ton of respect for bootstrapping and bootstrap founders the honest answer i think is, is like i i wasn't ready to bootstrap i think because the the start is slow because you have to be paid by your first client in order to make any major investment um you have to have a lot of patience. And I uh, basically wanted to shortcut that because there was money that was ready to, you know, be, be invested in that space. And it was a hot space and it was a, and I think we, we got out of that a lot of kind of partners and advice along the way from our uh, investors. And we were able to develop much faster and, um, hire a great team and, uh, you know, kind of still, it doesn't accelerate, I think, as much as people like to think because the learnings and the research takes a long time. That's kind of independent of whether you have the money or not. And the, um, 
there is an element where the money slows you down a little bit because you deal with stuff that you wouldn't have dealt with when you build a you know 10 20 person engineering org and an office and uh you know there's like all these details that come into play that are just uh, a tax uh, an operational tax in a way um but overall i think this is what we need to do I can, you know i can kind of uh a bit older, I have a family, I have a kid. Uh, it didn't suit me to have like infinite patience for this. Sure, that makes sense. I mean, uh, I think as as long as you have kind of like the the mature reasoning behind, uh, you know, bootstrapping or going after VC money, uh, it's it's all just fine. I don't quite get the whole like bias towards you know founders who have raised funds i mean it's it's different right and like you said thank you for saying that sometimes you know it's not just rainbows and butterflies you know you have to grow fast and you have to learn fast and it's not like you know you magically get an extra wire in your brain that you know allows you to do that faster uh, you, everyone does it in, in, in their own timing, but, um, it's also kind of, you know, like having two playbooks in the startup world, right? The one is, you know, you're bootstrapping, you're going slowly, you're, you know, after sustainable growth, you're an indie hacker, right? You have that label on you. And then another, you know, playbook is, well, we're VC funded. So what's your take on this kind of like playbooks and just like, bias um, of the whole like startup community. So I have this nuanced opinion, right? And um, kind of uh, some of it is uh, maybe a bit controversial or not what people like to hear, but I, I think market is kind of complicated and nuanced. But what happens is when we use the same label um, startup for uh, any company that has a website, basically, which is kind of how people behave today. I've seen people describe their offshore, um, you know, development agencies as startups, and people describe a, uh, a kind of restaurant chain as a startup, or I think we run a big risk because the advice is shared mostly very generically and broadly and mostly in like short form on like Twitter or LinkedIn or little newsletter pieces. And what ends up happening is that there's there's a lot of kind of a advice that doesn't apply broadly that is taken as, as kind of gospel or that generates all kinds of uh, weird incentives. So I'll give an example. Um, fintech is a uh, you know big growing industry one of the things that a lot of fintechs do is there's some form of um I, I don't even know the kind of official terms for this but there's some form of landing and moving money around mm -hmm. and so their product is money and so they often operate on very very small margins so for example they are maybe a small business lender or a kind of banking type solution or whatever and essentially for every million dollars that they make in revenue um they actually pass on most of it because it's it's either debt or it's a it's a credit line for someone else and so on and so they would make this revenue but then really the actual um kind of a profit that they make out of it is you know, 1% or 2% or something like that. So they need a lot of cash to operate because they need to go out and market all of that. And so you see stuff like a FinTech raises a $100 million round. Um, reading in between the lines, there's like 80 million of, of credit in there and 20 million of actual capital for the company. Um, and but the headline is a $100 million round, and that drags the kind of $100 million round attention in terms of yeah. um, employees and expectations and investors getting excited and so on and so forth. Uh, and it's all, not always commensurate. Like, you know, I've, some of these companies, when they make 
15, 50 million uh, in revenue a year. And they sometimes would call it ARR and it's not even really ARR, um, but they can make 50 million a year. And actually, you know, in terms of revenue to the company, that's like 500 because 1% of this and, uh, and, you know, there would be SaaS that could be bootstrapped and gets 500 K and is not valued or kind of uh, spoken about in, you know, nearly yeah. like, a, you know, not at a hundredth of what they are. Um, and I think that distorts the market. I think it distorts the market when we treat D2C brands and startups the same way as like deep tech and the same. And so not having different perspectives on the type of, for example, engineering and product that you need for these very different companies, um, the kind of uh, return expectations, the um, kind of growth expectations and growth rate expectations, bunching all of them in the same benchmarks for startups, for startup success, for startup growth rates, for startups expected. Uh, um, I think it does us more bad than good. And I wish this is something we kind of um, evolved in and not calling everything just tech, like the rest yeah. of the uh, industries in the world develop their own kind of names. Um, and uh, and I think we, we can kind of graduate to the point we don't have to say fintech and insure tech and health tech and call them all startups and treat them all as if they have to have the same kind of um, funding structure and round structure and speeds and equity deals and so on, but kind of... Uh, treat them as separate industries, separate business models, separate expectations, separate operating models. Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's fascinating. All right. Uh, it's, um, I don't think it's very controversial. I think on, on, on some level, every, everyone kind of understands that, you know, just taking this big labels and putting them on like literally just a huge part of business uh, is not very sustainable. But maybe it's just, uh, you know, it's, it's dumbing down it a little bit for, for everyone else. But, um, yeah, I get your point. All right. So uh, I wanted to, to uh, talk a little more in depth about what you're doing and how you're growing. Because uh, given the fact that you've raised $17 million, you're not really spending it all in one place, uh, right? Uh, you're, you chose a, quite a sustainable growth trajectory. So could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So we can talk about our market in particular as an example, right? So um, some properties of what we do is we sell to other SaaS tools, to other software startups. We sell to developers. And so our market is the market of SaaS. You can kind of look up how many SaaS tools there are total. We talked about the thousands of uh, MarTech tools. There's constant growth, but there's also constant churn because a lot of these are startups. They're a company uh, product experiment that runs for two or three or four years and then uh, shuts down. We unfortunately had uh, clients of ours that, that that gone through you know their own. They didn't reach PMF and they shut down on the kind of smaller, lower end. Um, so overall, you can uh, think of this kind of market of other SaaS tools that's maybe a few tens of thousands of tools. And then if you look at the ones that are kind of post series B, they're stable, they're going to kind of stay around um, and we can rely on, on their, you know, constant existence like uh, HubSpot or Salesforce or whatever for a long time. Um, that's an even smaller kind of market. And so to justify, you know, the, the scale with, with the plans that we have right now and what we do right now, you kind of have a company that's able to take, you know, a few thousands, tens of thousands, maybe even six figure deals from the, from, from your biggest clients. Um, but then, uh, and so that, that, you know, then, and then they have to implement it. So it takes like a while. So that like dictates a, a slower sales cycle. Um, but then on the uh, flip side of that, like we get to keep a, keep a lot of the revenue because like R&D is the main cost. And so the, the quality of our 
you know, R and D team and the product and it's, it's all, uh, digital and there's no service being provided or like e-commerce or again, other kind of things that are today treated as, um, as the, the same kind of startup, um, for us, it's pure technology. Um, and so, um, I think, you know, the kind of the thing that this guided us to is, um, we'll, we'll need cash to bring in a great set of engineers. Um, but it's not about, we never wanted this playbook that I think some other companies took and, uh, and sure didn't, you know, doesn't seem prudent today, uh, where they immediately, like they raised a lot of money in 2020, 2021, and they like hired, you know, tens or, or, uh, even, uh, you know, a hundred engineers or something. And then they had to, um, let them go when you know things didn't materialize or the market slowed down or stuff like that we we instead you know hired as if we didn't have all that uh all that money in the bank and kind of validated checkpoints along the way now i don't want to make it sound like we're genius and it was all premeditated a lot of it was learning along the way but we never had to kind of you know do a mass layoff or whatever because what we were was always kind of slow and careful and trying to see evidence of um the actual growth before we, before we kind of created a, uh, a company with, with no clients or not enough clients, which is the mistake that I see a lot of others do when there's a lot of money around. Fortunately, I think, you know, the silver lining of this, like kind of bad market that we're in now is that it does grow discipline. And I see newer companies or even existing companies kind of rein in their expectation and, and work in a more disciplined way. And I think that is net positive. I think it's net positive for employees that the valuations will go more in line. The companies will be safer and the, the equity bets will be safer rather than a company that raises on a valuation it can't reach and so on. And look, the, you know, to some extent, we also, we, we raised a ton. It was there, and it was very tempting. And we're working to to make that uh, valuable. But I think we're at least doing it prudently and not by kind of overpromising to ourselves. Hmm. So you took a bootstrapped approach to to a VC funded. I don't want to say startup now. <laughs> yeah. No. I see. I, I think it's not fair to say you know we're not bootstrapped right, in any in any way. But we're we're definitely trying to control the spend and kind of act as if we're as if we don't know if we'll raise again because i don't mm -hmm. think it's just a matter of like spending as fast as possible i think the situations where you can um blitz scale are kind of they're very market dependent and they're you know blitz scaling makes a lot of sense for um, network effects based businesses. It is way harder in B2B where the buyer, you know, goes through a kind of committee decision and they have, and it takes longer and they have to, um, change a workflow or rip and replace a system or integrate and embed a, a tool. That stuff you you can spend a lot on marketing and it doesn't uh, guarantee sticky growth at all. And sometimes the kind of I think I hope we'll see. I think the <laughs> smart thing is to kind of build carefully, client by client, fix the issues so that the next client doesn't run into them unless there's strong competition eating at your heels. Uh, kind of trying to build it carefully. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So uh, one more thing that I wanted to throw in uh, before we go into our two usual questions uh, is uh, team-led growth. Uh, I found your awesome, I don't know how to call it, webinar interview about the topic, uh, and I really liked it. Uh, so could you maybe elaborate what it is and how does it play into the whole court 
uh, situation. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, you kind of think of uh, different motions that uh, B2B tools, B2B SaaS took, and uh, we all know about sales-led growth. That was the kind of uh, way software is sold to this yeah. day, but definitely was mostly the way software was sold up to like, I don't know, seven years ago or so, six years ago, whenever is the kind of right timeline on, on that change, which is, uh, you know, salespeople talking to the buyer and convincing them to go on an annual contract usually. And then product-led growth, um, you know, is the realization that actually for a lot of products, you can just um, get go to the end user, convince them it's useful, and then grow through um, them kind of uh, adopting it for themselves. Um, I think team-led growth is how I kind uh, of name this trend that accelerates product-led growth or um, theoretically even sales-led growth and creates retention, but it's more common in product-led growth products, which is that the end user that decided that this is right for them and uh, started using it is also encouraged and has a very natural reason to invite more people to the product, right? And create these viral kind of network effect loops that we've seen at Facebook very, very um, strongly and intimately and are now making their way, you know, in B2B products. And the best example of this, I think, is, is Figma. So this is completely, you know, stealing from their blogs and their, you know, the discussions about that, that I kind of looked at deeply. And um, what the, what happened with Figma is that there were incumbents in this space of uh, sort of UX design. There was Sketch, there was um, Envision, there was Adobe XD, there were like a couple of tools that were very well known and, you know, very rich in terms of features and everything. And Figma didn't win on um, features, what it won on, it, it is a, a great product and a better product by now, I think for most designers, because it's kind of went um, ahead in terms of functionality. But originally what it won on was that when you had Envision or Sketch, the designer, when they wanted the feedback from the developer, the PM, they'd have to send screenshots because the developer and the PM never had Sketch or Envision installed. Um, and so, you know, you'd only get these like, however many, I don't know, there's like uh, most companies have a design index of, most tech companies have a design index of somewhere between one to five engineers and one to like 15 engineers. So like that's the amount of seats that you can get for this uh, product. And then if if a small company that had one or two designers, one of the designers left um, and another designer joined, the designer would bring the tool they worked with with them. So you could have a company switch from Sketch to Envision just because a designer that used Sketch left and then a designer that came in was better with Envision or Adobe. So that's what he would bring in because nobody cared because they didn't use the software themselves. Yeah. Um, but what happens with Figma then is that it's very natural, easy, more comfortable for both ends to comment inside of Figma. It's like, you can just go there on the browser and you can invite anyone. It's super easy and really good kind of communication about the thing that you're watching. And that makes it so, and Figma have on their blog these like network kind of visualizations where they show who are the designers and then who are the non-designers using Figma inside a company. And the non-designer population is way bigger because it's spread out from the designer to the PMs and all the decision makers and all the developers and all of that. And then um, they uh, won't rip and replace usually because when a new designer comes in, there's, you know, the PM and the team will just tell them, okay, you know, learn to use Figma because that's where we left our comments. That's where our context is. That's where the file, like we, we want to keep using that system. So it helps them with retention, stuff like that. So I, I label that as team led growth. I think it's like virality inside of the company as a way for seat expansion and retention. And of course, engagement, which, which drives all of that. Uh, and so that's kind of what Cord is empowering. I think there's other ways there's like rare 
other examples where you can show team-led growth without commenting, but commenting is just it's such a universally kind of viable path for this. If you have a spreadsheet app, you can add commenting to the spreadsheet. And guess what? There's other approvers and decision makers that need to go into the spreadsheet and leave comments. If you have a BI tool and so on and so forth. So broadly, you know, I think if you want to create that, that viral loop and create this like uh, seed expansion engagement and retention in, in your B2B SaaS, commenting is a good way to start. You can think of your particular cases and how to kind of broaden the use case so that you're not just targeting, I don't know, maybe you have a, a CI tool and it's targeting developers. Well, you can like expand the features in the use case. So it also targets DevSecOps or, or, or DevOps or something like that. And there's other equivalents to like increasing the, the kind of use cases that are handled. And as, as a result, increasing the set of, of, of team members that need to use it. Uh, but I think commenting is just a very universal way. And then your users just naturally at mention each other and bring each other into the product. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Thank you. I think it's really important. I mean, once somebody loves the product on the team and then bring it and, you know, you start kind of playing around with it and yeah, it, it spreads. If it's good, it spreads. I mean, uh, I love uh, the whole like lean startup thing and, you know, you have to build an idea and you have to sell the idea first and you have to build a company, just like something that we have already discussed. Uh, but if there is no product and if the product doesn't sell itself, um, no matter how good a company is uh, and how many um, VC rounds you've raised, it's just, yeah, it's just not going to move the needle for, for the customers or the users. So it, it wouldn't make any sense. All right. Well, um, two more questions, right? The usual ones. Um, yeah. First one is the biggest win and the biggest failure so far for the court. Oof. Uh, wow, that's hard. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think there's, you know, there's so many ups and lows on the way. Some that come to mind. I wouldn't clarify, you know, wouldn't kind of say they're the biggest ones necessarily. Um, I think we built, that's very, you know, it's very trite and everyone says that. Um, but I think we did build like the, an amazing team um, that's just like unique and uh, it has this property. I didn't realize how to call it until I saw a fairly recent uh, blog post with someone else describing this where the team is composed of extremely smart people that are extremely driven but are also extremely humble. And I think that is critical because um, you can find smart and driven people that are a nightmare to work with. And there's plenty of these around. And um, But once you find a set that know what they're doing and care about the details and are driven to succeed, but are also um, actually you know, kind and humble and kind of try to get along, then they act as this like natural filter. So I think we built a very resilient team in that regard. Um, and I'm really proud of what we built. Some of the, the biggest wins have to do with like, you know, reaching like milestones in the usage of the product that we, you know, we have um, a client where more than 70% of their end users are 70% um, of their weekly actives are commenting every week. And then even more are like reacting to comments, resolving comments, reading comments, et cetera, et cetera. And it's just great to see that you've built a feature that, you know, for a few thousand dollars, um, this client now has a feature that is like one of the most used features in their products, like a video editing product. Um, it's a great fit and just works well. Um, so, you know, a lot of that were big wins, the kind of exciting deals that we had. On biggest failures, man, there's a, there's a lot of that as well. Um, most of them, I think for me, uh, fall down to bad product decisions that I made. Um, stuff that I believed in uh, and I couldn't see uh, that it was wrong and it took a while to realize it was wrong and then it took a while to fix it. Um, for me, it's the product stuff that I care about. Like an example would be we, for the longest time, kind of sold and and you know, believed in and, and tried to like 
uh, push this vision of a sidebar for collaboration where you mm -hmm. essentially can integrate it very easily because it just um, takes up the right hand side of the screen and all the comments would live there and the user could access their inbox there and, and so on and so forth. Um, and the thing is uh, that it just doesn't work. It doesn't fit a lot of products because what you really want is the commenting to live in context on the elements um, that it's talking about rather than on the side um, where it's both kind of out of the way. You have to draw these arrows in order to point at the thing that you kind of want. It means that it's harder for users to create a comment. Like there's a set of products for which the sidebar fits, but um, a lot of them you get more by actually breaking it down to pieces and components and saying, okay, I can, and that was, you know, that was a, it, it cost us a while to go with that solution and to kind of take the time to realize that we need to change it. And we took a big rewrite to do that. And that was on me. Um, there's a couple of other things that, you know, are more technical I have to do with the, with the SDK. And I think my uh, co-founder who is more uh, kind of involved with the SDK and API surface kind of bears these as, as his own things that, that he feels he didn't direct the team quickly enough to the right solution. Uh, and we're still learning, right? Like a lot of it is, is learning, but these, these definitely feel like the biggest, the biggest, the, the lowest moments. Okay. That makes sense. I mean, it's, it's your, uh, and I, I don't really like to, uh, to say it's your baby, right? Cause it's not your baby, but it's something that is so deeply care about right and you're like oh but uh it didn't work so you take it personally no matter what no matter how much people say you know oh you shouldn't because it's just just a product but uh yeah i completely understand and uh well the last question is about a hack uh right so can be anything can be about you know building an amazing team can be about sustainable growth um something that might sound unconventional for many people, but works for you. Um, the few things we ditched along the way, I think there is a, then it's a personal learning for me. And so it's kind of maybe an anti-hack. I think there's a culture that I see that's, that I was, kind of uh, also t taking, you know, taking a lot of guidance from that's a culture of making up a lot of processes for everything. You see it in a lot of newsletters and LinkedIn posts and whatever. Um, people have these recipes for uh, how to, you know, do product planning or kind of, oh, you have to write this doc and that doc, and uh, we have this style of uh, one pager with, and I, I think you can get very, very, it's very addictive. There's something very easy to get kind of excited about, especially if you're like a kind of a productivity freak like me. And some of the stuff that I learned over time is to actually shed all of these constructs that are, a lot of them are coming from way, way bigger companies than your average startup and are mainly useful and needed, if at all, at a 500-person company, not at a 10-person company, but they're being adopted in a 10-person company. And I think what you kind of really want in a 10-person company is actually something that doesn't rely on these crutches and is just like very open discussions and just gunning for it and kind of sharing what works and what doesn't. And I think the hack is like actually feel very welcome to forget and ignore all of this advice. There is not one process or document or founder associate or chief of staff or like a lot of these trends of like, oh, you know, this is how Spotify built their teams. This is how Amazon does their one pagers, none of that, I think, uh, will make the difference between failure and success. Yeah, I know that's my, my hack was stopping uh, personally to put a lot of stock and kind of a lot of care and interest into all of these 
I, I don't know another word for it, that in the processes and documents yeah. and kind of just going with like, oh, we'll just work on the project without defining it or having sprints or whatever. We'll just work on it until it's ready. Mm-hmm. And if something else comes up that's more important, we're going to stop working on it, working on the on the other thing. And we don't need, you know, big process documents or commitments to ourselves or roadmaps. What we need is to be in the room and talk about it and kind of share the vision, understand, work out what's important, what's not. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I had, I don't know, a couple of years ago, just the biggest anxiety uh, in my life because everywhere you would look, there would be a blog post or video about like automate this and automate that. And if you're, you know, if you're a marketer, you have to, uh, you know, have your, your blog posts and your social media posts be in the buffer for like months and months to just, you know, go out there to, to focus on this strategy and then the bigger picture. And I was like, I don't even have buffer in the first place. Like I, I just, you know, I just go with the flow. There is a piece of news that I want to to reflect on, and you know, there is a conversation that I want to to discuss on social media. Um, so it was just constantly like trying to to adopt all these like automation tools and you know, be be better, <laughs> be faster. Uh, but then, yeah, I came to realize that it, it's not a this is not a success if you have you know tens uh, of you know thousands of posts uh scheduled in your um scheduling tool they might all be super mediocre and you know not do anything um so it's really really not about that it, it is about work and it is about you know reflecting on what's uh, you know actual and what's there so yeah uh, i think that's a great hack we we all need to chill sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, thank you, Nimrod. I mean, that was a, uh, I really, really like that hack. And I really uh, enjoyed the conversation. I think what you're doing with Cord is is pretty great. I mean, I got really excited about the product and what it could do to teams. Uh, so yeah, would be happy to, you know, follow up next year, uh, see where you're at, what you're building. So thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks so much. It was great chatting. Sure, I same here. And take care. That was yet another awesome conversation on SaaS Unbound. We're always looking for new guests to share their experiences. We mostly talk with bootstrapped SaaS founders. And if you're one, reach out to me directly at anna at saas.group or find me on LinkedIn. If you're not bootstrapped or even not SaaS, but have a great story to tell, we want to hear from you too. And obviously, SaaS Unbound wouldn't be possible without the SaaS Group, a founder-friendly private equity company that buys awesome businesses that people love to take them to even greater success. If you're thinking about selling your company or just exploring your options, feel free to visit saas.group, fill in the form, and expect a response in under 24 hours.